Good morning. It's good to see all of you. My name is Jeff Smith. I'm the lead pastor here at Gateway Church, and we are just so pleased that you've joined us today. If you're new or you're still checking out Gateway just a little bit, we're especially glad that you're here, and we just want to encourage you to get connected here with us at Gateway. One way that you can do that is with a handout that you received when you came in. It looks like this. On the back side of it, there's this part that says praise and prayer, praise reports and prayer requests. You guys all take it out? Everybody want to look at it? You know, anybody? No. So anyway, that is a really important place for you to get connected. We really believe strongly in the power of prayer. And every week, the staff, as well as the entire board, uh, pray over those prayer requests. And so I want to encourage you, take a few minutes, fill that out, and then later on in the service, we'll collect those uh, when we take the offering. Now, you may have noticed, for those of you that have been with us for some time, you might notice a huge bouquet of white flowers. That's 17 flowers in that jar. And for those of you that might not know this, that indicates that 17 people accepted Jesus Christ this last week. 17 people. It was through our our prison fellowship ministry. We've got some people that are working hard to push back the darkness to allow Jesus to come in and to make the difference in lives of people. And I want to encourage you, if you feel like God might be pulling you in that direction, you want to serve a little bit, you want to get involved in that way, uh, find me, uh, find someone else, another church leader, and we can help get you involved in that. In addition to that, one, one other really awesome win, we had hundred and over 130 people that signed up for life groups over the past couple of weeks. Uh, that's an enormous number. I'm so excited to see what God's going to do in our midst over the course of the next year in our life groups. And if you didn't get a chance to sign up for one, I want to encourage you to do that. You can still do so at the end of the service. There's a little table right out here in the lobby, and we would love for you to get involved in that. Well, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dig right in, okay? Father God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our midst. Lord, I just pray that you would speak in a powerful way to our hearts through the message today. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Um, We love you. We submit ourselves to you today. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. So over the the course of the last seven weeks, we have been in a series called Faith That Works. We've been looking at the New Testament book of James. I don't know about you, but I have sort of this love-hate relationship with the book of James. Like, it's a really practical book. You know, it's easy to kind of understand what's being said to us. But at the same time, man, applying the messages that we have heard is just incredibly difficult. Because it speaks to us at such a such a deep level, and it challenges us to change the way that we live. And James's message is all about us being the kind of community of believers, the the followers of Jesus that make a difference in the world, that are action-centric. Not just the people that learn, not just the people that gain knowledge, but people that apply it and that use it to make a difference in the world. Now, we've been in this series for quite some time. We still have a little ways left, but I wanted to kind of take a pause today. I wanted to step back for at least part of our time together, and I wanted to talk about a really important question to ask when you're looking at a text like James, and that's the question of why. Why? Why should we care about all of this? We're sitting in a room here together. It's a rainy Sunday morning. I don't know about you, but I could think of some really cool things to do other than being here if we didn't have a good why. I would love to be at home watching a movie, maybe sleeping, 
But I think that we don't often understand the why very well. Why are we here? Why do we seek to know God and to worship him? Well, historically, I think the church has done a decent job of answering the question of what. I mean, the church is in like the global church, the church throughout history. What is pretty simple. We exist, the church does, so that we can know about God, so that we can learn how to be better people, so that we can make an impact on the world around us. The what is pretty clear. I even think in general the how has been pretty clear. So we, you know, we, we go to church, and that's part of executing the what. We do our Bible studies, and that's part of executing the what. We engage in ministry opportunities to to help people with the what. But I think that the why has been really diluted. I think that we haven't leaned into what that means. Why are we here, church? And so I want to spend part of our time. We are going to dig into chapter 3 of James, the last part of chapter 3. But I want to spend sort of the first half of our time today addressing this question. And there's really kind of two primary points, two kind of things that I think we need to get our arms around as it relates to this question of why, before we can really take the book of James and really apply it because of how difficult it is. The first is this, of the two principles, is God is the ultimate satisfaction to the human heart. So as we're kind of processing why are we here, understanding that God is the ultimate satisfaction to the human heart is a really important place to start. So there are a lot of things in life that fill us. Our families fill us. Our jobs fill us. They sort of fit into our understanding of what life is all about. But the greatest satisfaction that you or I can ever have is not in our job. It's not in our financial resources. It's not in our family. It's not in our friendships. It's not in having that toy or engaging in that sinful behavior. It is always in God. Our greatest satisfaction comes from God. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 107.9 says this, For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. God is the ultimate satisfier of our soul. Imagine yourself being like a really intricate puzzle piece, right? And again, we we try to put other things into this puzzle piece, and some of them, they fit for like part of the puzzle, but not the whole puzzle piece. Some of them we try to ram into certain places, and it frays the edges of that first puzzle piece of us, but you know what? There's only one thing that's going to completely fill that puzzle piece, and that's God. The second thing is this, And it leads from the first piece that following God leads us into this ultimate satisfaction. That God, he desires for us to have this deep and lasting satisfaction that's only found in him. And he leads us into that life. Psalm 1611, this is one of my favorite verses in scripture. It says this, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And so the answer to the why is really simple. It's that when we follow closely to God, we will have the most satisfied and filled life possible. That there's nothing that will satisfy you the same way that God will. And I know that we think about these other reasons. We say, well, you know, I go to church because it's the right thing to do. You know, I go to church because I would rather do that than burn in hell. I mean, you know? Like, imagine 
Imagine this like a marriage relationship. I've been married to my wife for 12 years. On the one side, you have these, these diluted reasons for being married. You know, well, I made a commitment. Oh, there's a lot of joy in that, isn't there? Like I stood in front of some religious guy and I said, I'm going to be there. You know, is that really the reason you want to be married? No, you want to be married because of the joy, because of the life, because of the experiences of being married. That's the joy of marriage. And the joy of our relationship with God, of the life that God intended us to have, is found in satisfaction that we can only have in God. And so James has been kind of brutal, right? If you've been with us, James has been kind of hard. And I think sometimes we might be tempted to step back and to say, you know what? Hands in the pockets. I don't think I'm going to do that. I don't think that the why is strong enough for how hard this is going to be. You're telling me, looking back at chapter 1, that I have to go through trials and I shouldn't try to avoid them. That there's going to be tough stuff in life. You're telling me that? No, nah, not interested. The why is not good enough. You're telling me i got to avoid temptation, but that thing, whatever that thing is, it's so nice, it's so great. Yep. The why is not good enough, is it? I shouldn't show favoritism. I shouldn't be non-action-oriented. I should just be a passive human being, all these different things. If the why is not strong enough, we as people, as human beings, we will naturally stray to saying, I'm not going to do that. But the why is so much greater. Because ultimate satisfaction, the very thing that your soul is longing for is God. And if you don't understand that or don't know that, talk to someone who has walked with God for years. Someone who has been through the hard stuff. Maybe somebody that's going through the hard stuff right now. But can say, you know what? God's always worth it. Following God was not easier than the path I was on, but it's always worth it. So as we continue in the book of James, I think that we need to remember that. That the why is so much greater than what we've ever imagined. If you've got your Bibles, why don't you grab them? We're going to be in James chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 13. Today, we're talking about wisdom. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, I'd encourage you to grab one from a purple chair right around you. If you don't own a Bible or you don't have a Bible that you understand, I would encourage you to take that one home. That's our gift to you. You can also follow along on the screens behind me, or I would encourage you also to download one on your phone. That's a great way to also have the Bible with you. So today, we're looking at wisdom, and we're going to look at these two kind of contrasting views of wisdom, sort of the counterfeit, the non-real, the worldly or earthly version of wisdom, but then we're also going to be looking at godly wisdom, wisdom that comes from heaven. So starting in verse 13, it says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from from wisdom. So wisdom, I think, is a, a misunderstood concept in our culture. Like, we, we hear a lot about, like, smart people, intellectually advanced people, AP. I don't know, does it, is AP still a thing in schools? Okay, all right. You hear about people that make really great scores on their ACT or their SAT, or they get that great job because they're intellectually there, but we very rarely hear about wisdom. 
So what is real wisdom? Like, what does wisdom actually look like? Well, wisdom is a lot more than just knowledge. Like, knowledge is certainly a piece of it. Understanding, clarity of thought. But it's more than that. See, wisdom is actually knowledge applied. So, that has some implications to it, right? One of which is that wisdom cannot exist in a vacuum. Wisdom cannot exist without being tested, without being tried. It's kind of like love in that way. Love cannot be proven until you actually go through something, until you actually have to do something about it. You could say you love somebody, but you really don't love them until you find out that thing that you don't really like about them. You can't really love somebody until you've been through years of marriage where you realize how sinful each other is, right? And you have to go through that, and you have to make a decision at the end of it to say, you know what, I'm still with that person. That's what love is. In the same way, that's what wisdom is. Wisdom doesn't mean anything until it's tested, until it's used. I think sometimes our vision of wisdom, how we think about wisdom is completely flawed. You know, I don't know about you, but I imagine like this guy, you know, sitting Indian style or crisscross applesauce, whichever way you prefer, you know, on the top of a mountain, like an eastern guy with the long beard, you know, and he's kind of like in this weird seance kind of state, you know, and, and people like hike up there and ask him one question, whoa, you know, whatever. By the way, that's completely not what wisdom is, as a side note, but that's just what I think of sometimes, you know. Wisdom's kind of cool in that way. But Wisdom is completely different than that. Wisdom is all about not necessarily knowing everything, not necessarily having every answer, but it's about having good application of knowledge depending on what God, excuse me, about what life throws your way, right? So I'll give you an example. This last week, Amanda and I, my wife, we went and we got our driver's license, our Minnesota driver's licenses. Thank you. So... To get your Minnesota driver's license, we had to do something different than when we moved to Wisconsin. You see, Wisconsin actually trusts the fact <laughs> that you were tested the first time you got your driver's license. So we didn't have to do another test. We just walked in, we paid our fee, and they say, hey, here's your driver's license. But that's not the way it works in Minnesota, right? So we came, and thankfully, we had some neighbors that told us, hey, when you get your driver's license, you better study for the test. Now, I'm old. I'm not in school. I don't like tests anymore, right? So we studied for this test. Thankfully, we both passed. Amanda and I both passed. We have our driver's licenses. But the question is, did studying for that test make me a better driver? Maybe. I heard somebody say maybe. That's the right answer. Because did we get more knowledge? Well, absolutely. Yes, we did. I, I didn't realize this, but you can stop 20 feet short of a bus stop. I'm, I'm asking you, right, babe? 20 feet short as long as the stop sign's out. And I think it's 500 feet you have to be behind an RV. And that's about as far as I can remember. There was 40 questions on the test, by the way. I have more knowledge now. But does it make me more wise? Does it make me a better driver? Well, if I apply it, then yes. If I do something with it, then yes. That's the way that wisdom interacts with knowledge. Now, let's look back at this verse. It says, let them show it 
by their good life. People that claim to be wise, that claim to be understanding. This is back in verse 13 again. By deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. A good life is about humility. Now you want to talk about a topic that's not really popular. Humility is not a particular, particularly popular topic in our culture either. I mean, I've seen sports stars and this and that, and they're on TV, and they're doing interviews, and they're like, yeah, you know, my team would be terrible without me. Yeah, I think I'm the best. You know, LeBron's pretty good, whatever, but I think I'm better. Aaron Rodgers might be okay, but I think I'm better. You know, you get all this stuff, all of these guys that build themselves up, but that's not what the text says real wisdom is about. Real wisdom is about humility. It's about deeds that are done in humility. Wisdom isn't about puffing ourselves up with knowledge. It's not about saying, look how smart I am. But it's actually about acknowledging that we are not what things are all about. That it's about God and it's about other people. Tim Keller is one of my favorite authors. And he has this quote from a book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And the quote is this, The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. It's thinking of myself less. Now, does this make sense? Does this make sense that humility gives us the best life possible? Well, on the outside, maybe not. But I think if we really understand that this story is about God, that God leads us into the ultimate satisfaction that we can have, then yes, it makes sense that humility is a part of what we are about. Now let's continue. Verses 14 through 16, this is sort of the counterfeit wisdom. Again, we're looking at the difference between counterfeit wisdom and real wisdom, authentic, genuine wisdom. Starting in verse 14, it says this, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disaster and every evil practice. So James, he, he throws two kind of primary ideas of what counterfeit wisdom has as a piece of it to kind of help us chew on and understand what real wisdom actually is about. And the first one is this. The first one is bitter enviness. Bitter envy, not enviness, bitter envy. So envy is this idea that, you know, what somebody has, their circumstances is what we want, right? Like, I want to be, you know, like my neighbor who just bought that new car. Or I want to be like my friend that just got that promotion. Or I want to be in this circumstance. But it's not just saying that by itself, it's fixating on that. You see, having ambitions in life are not necessarily bad. That's not a, a wrong thing in and of itself. But when we fixate on it, when we desire it so badly that it causes us to not be content with where God has put us, then it begins to rob us of joy. And it begins to erode away our soul. And I think it's interesting that James includes the word bitter in front of it. Bitterness is even worse. I mean, envy is in, in and of itself bad, but this bitterness, it gives the impression of just deep longing and nefarious intent and brokenness in our minds and in our hearts. This is something also that we see in our culture all over the place. We see it in our stories, too. 
So I think about, uh, Amanda and I have been watching this show called Once Upon a Time, and it's this show that kind of is a real-life, sort of live-action version of all of these old stories, right? And one of the primary plot lines in this, in this show is the Snow White slash Evil Queen storyline. Now, how many of you have heard that story, the Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? How many of you remember that one? A couple people do. So basically what happens in the story, I'm not going to ruin the whole thing for you, but the Evil Queen, she goes and she talks to this magic mirror. And she asks this mirror over and over, hey, who's the fairest? Who's the prettiest? Who's the most successful? Who's the one that everybody wants to be around in the whole kingdom? And for years, the magic mirror says, oh, it's you. Oh, it's you. Oh, evil queen, you're so perfect. You're so great. You're so beautiful. You're so successful. On and on and on and on and on. Until one day, she asks the same question. Who's the fairest of them all? And what does the mirror say? Snow White is the fairest of them all. And then ensues this deep envy and bitterness that ends up, even though this is a kid's tale, in her trying to murder someone out of envy. You see, bitter envy, it does terrible things to us. It makes us do things that we would not normally do. I don't know where you are at today. Maybe you're in this place. You know, maybe you've got some envy in your heart. Maybe that promotion should have been yours. You know? Or maybe those kids should have been your kids. Maybe your kids, for whatever the reason, they're, they're too rambunctious, or, or maybe there's, there's learning disabilities or something. Why couldn't I have kids like that person? Why is it that my spouse is like this? You know, if, if, if I only had XYZ person's spouse, they'd spend more time with me, or, or they would love me in a different way. But, but why? why? Why do I not have that person? Bitter envy. It consumes us. That's the first piece of earthly wisdom. The second is this. It's selfish ambition. Again, ambition by itself is not necessarily wrong. But selfish ambition is this idea of I'm going to get what I want at all costs. It doesn't matter who I hurt. It doesn't matter if I honor God or not. I'm just going for it. I'm just going for it. And it does terrible things to our soul. This is something that pastors, myself included, that we struggle with sometimes. You know, I, I stand up here every week and I, and I talk to you. And my goal, my hope is that God does amazing things in your lives, in the lives of the community around us, that, that the why really becomes part of your life, that the satisfaction that God promises is known in you. But sometimes it can be a little bit about me. Sometimes you hear people say, hey, man, that was a great job. Woo! Your message changed my life. Sometimes as a pastor, I like to hear that. But what is my real goal here? What is my goal? Is it, is it my goal to, to pump myself up? To get so many people in this room that we have to have eight services on a weekend? That'd be a lot of preaching. Like, what am I really after? 
See, selfish ambition is all about motives. It's not about the wrong action or the right action necessarily. It's all about what's in here. And it can be really, really dark, church. It can be really dark. Now the hard part about these two things, these elements of worldly wisdom, this bitter envy and the selfish ambition is that they're so easy for us to fall into. When we make it about us, when we make it about our own joy and satisfaction, happiness and pleasure and whatever it might be that only is gained by us going out and getting stuff, this is what happens. It erodes who we are, and it is false wisdom. Now in verses 17 and 18, James kind of turns the tables on us. He gives us a look at what real wisdom actually looks like. Let's read together. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure. Then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So what James does here, he lines out a whole bunch of characteristics of what real, God-focused wisdom is all about. And if you'll notice as we go through all of these, all of these are selfless in nature, not selfish in nature. Let's go through them together. The first one that he talks about is pure. A characteristic of genuine wisdom is purity. Now, purity has a couple different elements to it. First of all, there's the idea of purity in terms of set-apartness, of holiness. It's not tainted, but there's another implication here, too, and that's of direction, that we are pure in terms of our devotion toward God. We're not distracted. We're not pulled in a hundred different directions. We are pure in our devotion and direction toward God. That's a characteristic of godly, genuine wisdom. The second is that we are peace-loving. Now, peace-loving is this implication of, uh, or this idea that we don't stir up trouble. Now, I don't know about you, and maybe this isn't a very good thing about me. Sometimes I just like to stir the pot a little bit. You know? Once in a while, just kind of see what happens. I probably shouldn't have said that. (laughs) But that's not what peace-loving people are about. You see, peace-loving people aren't passive either. Peace-loving people are people that are aggressive in seeking peace, in being inclusive, in showing forgiveness, in showing love. It's about proactive peace-giving. It chases peace wherever it's possible. The next one is being considerate. considerate. Being considerate of others isn't necessarily on my top ten list of most you know, desired traits to be successful in life, but it's still on our list of what real wisdom looks like. Now, there's a couple of pieces to being considerate as well. I think there's a compassion element. You love people. You're considerate because of your care for them. But inclusiveness is also part of being considerate. We talked about that several weeks ago, about showing favoritism, about how that completely erodes away God's message and God's power in our midst. And in the same way, being considerate of others means that we're accepting. It means that we're loving. It means that even though that person, you know, likes music that we don't like, that they, you know, say things that you're like, whoa, really? Maybe they make decisions in life that you're like, that's a terrible decision. But it's about showing compassion, being considerate of people. That's what godly wisdom is all about. The next is submissiveness. 
Um, how many of you guys like being submissive as a side note? Anybody? Oh, yeah. I don't either. Submissiveness is taboo in our culture. But being submissive, first and foremost to God, that's what genuine wisdom is all about. It's about understanding God's place and our place underneath Him. The next one is full of mercy and good fruit. Wisdom not only seeks what is right, but it seeks what is best. You get the difference? Like sometimes what is right is judgment on someone. Someone, sometimes what's right is saying, you know what, you did that again, now you're getting punishment. But sometimes what's right is not necessarily what's best. Sometimes mercy is in order. And when we consider mercy in light of judgment, it does not take long for us to look at Jesus and to say, look at what it was that we deserved in our rebellion against God when we chose our own pathway, when we said, yeah, God, your way is not what I want to do. And look at the mercy that was shown to us, to those of us who love God, who follow Him. We needn't look far. And mercy produces great fruit. It produces a result. It produces something that's tangible, that's right in front of us. The last is this, that wisdom is impartial and it's sincere. Again, it's inclusive of others. It's genuine in its nature. It doesn't have mixed motivations, but rather... It's all about focusing on God and the good of other people as people move toward him. Verse 18 talks about peacemakers. Peacemakers are the ones that fit these qualifications. It says that they reap a harvest of righteousness. Again, this is the idea that there's something tangible to be seen from how we live, from how we interact with people. And when we exhibit godly wisdom, genuine wisdom, the world around us changes. People change. Your family, it's going to change if you exhibit godly wisdom. Your friends, your neighbors, your workplace, everything changes when we exhibit godly wisdom. And again, the why undergirding all of this is that for us, we are most satisfied when we are in God, when we live according to His way. The challenge for us today is to pursue real wisdom is to pursue real wisdom. Now again, I don't know where you're at today. I mean, you may be in a place where you're doing this well, where these characteristics would describe you being pure, being loving, being submissive, being considerate, loving peace. Maybe that's where you're at, but maybe you're not there. You know? The hard thing about Bitter envy, bitter envy is that it's hard to see. The hard thing about selfish ambition is it's about motivation. You can't see it necessarily. And so again, maybe, maybe you're in a situation where one of these things is attacking you. But I think for us, if we really want to be what God wants us to be, if we really want to be fully satisfied in Him, we need to adopt this idea of being full of real wisdom. Now, how do we do that? I think there's a couple things that we can do. I think the first thing that we need to do 
in pursuit of real wisdom is we need to ask God for it. It seems a little bit simple, right? But it's pretty straightforward in Scripture that if we ask God for wisdom, He will give it. James chapter 1, we went over this several weeks ago. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. We need to ask God for wisdom. Now, I do want to put a little preface here. If you ask God for wisdom, because wisdom is action-oriented, right, something's probably going to happen. Like, you're going to have a circumstance where you have to exercise good wisdom. Because it's only knowledge until it's tested, until it's put to use. But again, if we want God's best in our lives, we need to ask Him for wisdom. The second thing that we need to do is we need to reject selfishness. You know, this one's a tough one. I'm just going to be really honest. Because sometimes it's just easier to make it about us. But if you've never heard this, I want you to hear it today. Your life is not really about you. My life is really not about me. And the thing is, is that that's better when you really think about it. Like, it's really hard to sit under the weight of the universe revolving around me. Right? It's really hard to sit under that weight. All of the expectations, all the stuff I got to do, all the different things I got to enjoy. Like, ah, it's just so tiring, right? This life is not about you. This life isn't about me either. Life is first and foremost about God. There's this great quote from Colonel Eric Kale that I found in a Huffington Post article that I think shed some really great light on this idea of selfishness versus selflessness. And I'm going to read it quickly. No one wants a weak leader, and no one should have to tolerate it. Selflessness is all about strength. And it's not for the faint of heart. Weakness, on the other hand, takes the path of least resistance. And as humans, that means being selfish. Wanting all the credit and none of the blame. Real strength is measured by what we enable our followers to accomplish, the people around us to accomplish, through our service to them. Not by the pressure of our grip and the weight of our demands. So we need to reject selfishness. Now what does that look like? That's kind of ethereal, right? Well, maybe some things that you can do is get some people around you that are willing to say, hey, by the way, you're being kind of selfish. Maybe you need to get into a life group. We talked about that earlier. If you have not signed up for one, you still can. Yeah! Maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe you need to serve. You know, selfishness is all about holding tightly to the things we care about. Maybe, ooh, and this one's a tough one, maybe you need to give financially a little more. Financial resources are something that we hold tightly to. Maybe you need to dig in a little further. The thing is, is when we give more of anything, our time, our resources, as we open up our hands, God then has a place to give us more blessing, to give us that satisfaction that can only be found in Him. And so, yeah, maybe you need to give more money. Maybe you need to give more of your time. Maybe you're selfish with your time. Maybe you need to give more of that away. Serving here at Gateway Church. 
serving in our prison ministry. 17 people came to know the Lord. That's amazing. How about we make it 27 next week? Right? Whatever it is, we need to reject selfishness. The third thing, which is closely related to the second, is this. We need to adopt humility. We need to be humble. Now, humility at its root is all about understanding the way reality works. Okay, so follow me. So, you and I are nothing compared to God. That's reality. Now, sometimes we get ourselves into this false mindset that, oh, yeah, you know, we're, we can kind of do this or do that, or we're really worth something. But outside of God, you're worth nothing, and so am I. Now, because of the gospel, because of the good news of Jesus, we have an opportunity to be something, to be worth something. But real humility is looking at the situation and saying, you know what, without God I'm nothing, but with God I'm something. In fact, I'm something really special. I'm something really powerful. And that's what humility is. Not thinking less of yourself, not thinking more of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Now what does it look like to adopt humility in your life? Well, maybe what you need to do is get a mentor in your life. Follow someone who has exhibited humility. Mentorship is so important. I think it makes an enormous difference in the lives of people. Both the mentor and the mentee. The person who's following and the person who's leading. Maybe you need to identify somebody that has lived a life of humility and follow it. Now, the only hard thing is, is that people who live in humility usually aren't the people that everybody sees, right? But there are people here in our church, there are people in this room right now who have lived a life of humility that would be great people to try to emulate. Maybe you need to study, look at more at what humility is. There's a couple of really great books that you could read. One of them I mentioned earlier, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by Tim Keller. It's a great book on looking less at ourselves and looking more at God, being more of what He intends us to be, which is worshipers, which is satisfied in it not being about us. Andrew Murray is another one that wrote a book on humility. Maybe leaning into one of those resources would be good for you. Maybe you need prayer. We're going to have people lined up at the end of the service in the front. I'll be in the back. I would love to pray for you, to help navigate. Maybe one of these things is something you need to do. Maybe asking God is what you need to do. You know, you can also, if you want to, you could take that connection card. You can write on the back of it, pray for wisdom for me. Write your name. Write, pray for wisdom. And we'll pray for you. Whatever it is, let's be wise people. Not wise cracking people, but wise people. People that make a difference in the world. Because God, God wants to give you satisfaction. I don't know if you know that. That's a really, really important thing for you to understand. God wants you to be satisfied in life. A great theologian once said this, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. And when we choose wisdom, when we choose real wisdom, we can have that satisfaction, church. So let's do it. Let's be wise people. Real wisdom. Not the fake stuff. Let's pray.
God, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have offered us a pathway to real wisdom. And not just for wisdom's sake, God, but that we might be people that impact the world around us and that we might be ultimately satisfied in you. Lord, I love that definition of the gospel. That while, yes, it, it, it includes all of these great things that we achieve heaven, we get forgiveness, we're justified for our sins, all those things are true and so wonderful. But in the end, the gospel is about us getting you. Being restored to you, Lord. I ask God that you would work on our hearts, that you would not leave us alone, that you would help us to remember that this deep satisfaction is available to us. Be near us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.